Hello. This is going to be a very special episode of Through the Keyhole. I am without a guest. Uh, this is my first solo episode, although I suppose that, um, in a manner of speaking, I do have a guest. Uh, it's just that my guest is not present and will not be able to um, say anything. What I would like to talk about today is something that happened last weekend that affected a lot of people, myself included. So, on the website Medium, sometime late last week, uh, by the time I saw the article, I think it had been posted for three days, so I guess what, Thursday, Friday, a writer whose name I'm not going to share because I don't want this to turn into a... a uh, torches and pitchforks kind of thing. Um, so I'm just going to refer to him as Horatio. He posted an article, the title of which I'm also not going to share for the same reason, but I can assure you that the writer is a real person and his article is a real article. And should you take the fancy uh, at last check earlier this morning, it was still on Medium, so go check it out. But this writer uh, wrote uh, an article about J.R.R. Tolkien, and the article itself set out to make the point that The Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, masterwork, masterpiece, is not a Christian story. I'm going to say that again. The article written by Horatio said that, aimed to make the point that the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings. Not a Christian story. Huh. I'm willing to entertain what he has to say, right? Like that's the least we can that's the least we owe a person is to hear them out. And that was a mistake. Upon reading his article, it quickly became clear that that it wasn't a serious article. It just wasn't. No offense to him. I'm, I'm doing my best to be charitable and to not uh, unnecessarily uh, harangue the guy, Horatio. But it wasn't a serious article. It was poorly researched. And beyond that, it was a lot of things. I read the article... And as I read it, I felt myself getting worked up. And a lot of people got worked up. Like I said, this article caused quite a stir amongst the Tolkien fandom. And rightly so. Because hundreds of thousands, well, no, millions of people around the world have found something life-changing in the work or in the life of J.R.R. Tolkien, myself included. I wouldn't be who I am, where I am, or what I am, were it not for J.R.R. Tolkien and his work. And I know a lot of people who feel exactly the same. I know people who have made very successful careers for themselves at just because of their love of J.R.R. Tolkien. I know people who, like myself, credit him for their turn towards the faith. And Horatio's just like, nah, screw that. Ain't a Christian story. Fine, you're entitled to your opinions. 
But upon reading the article, it quickly becomes clear that not only is it poorly researched, but it also serves, it seems to serve. And this is, this is my own personal belief. I believe it was a Trojan horse. It started out as the Lord of the Rings is not a Christian story. It ended, you know, you could think of that meme of how it started, how, how it started, how it's going. And it started as an article about the Lord of the Rings not being a Christian story. Fine, whatever. Let's hear your points. It ended as just a scree against Christianity and Christians itself. And that was, that was what bothered me so much, was not just that it intentionally, it intentionally misunderstood the work itself. That's fine, whatever. But it went a step further. It went many steps further and just turned into Christians are stupid. Christians are stupid. They're all stupid. All of them are stupid. And then it ends ends the 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 entire article ends on basically just saying and they're also hypocrites which again christians are hypocrites absolutely we do a terrible job of living up to what we believe we should be doing but if given a choice between doing a terrible job of living up to a concrete moral code and having no moral code, I would take the former over the latter eight days in a seven-day week. If you don't have a map, you're lost. And maybe you follow that map well, maybe you get turned around a few times or many times, but at least you have a map, and it has an X on it, and you are generally, hopefully, generally moving in the right direction. And again, Horatio just comes in, is like, nope, screw all that, you're all stupid. What I plan to do here is uh, break this video into two videos. The first one's going to look at the points as it pertains to the title and the, uh, the overt purpose of the article. In my second video, which I may or may not record right after this one, it'll be less scripted and more uh, off the cuff addressing his seeming uh, his seeming animus towards the Christian faith. Which again, you don't have to be a Christian. I want you to. I hope that you will be. But you don't have to be. That's your that's your choice and you're free to make it. But let's try not to uh, let's try not to mock and needlessly insult the one third of the global population who is Christian? That seems reasonable, right? So we'll get into it. So there are a few points here that he made. And I've just made a few uh, cursory notes and refute. In his, uh, his, his opening point, his very first point, Horatio claims, and this is a quote, this is, this is what he wrote as the... Uh, this is what he wrote as the, the head, the header for this particular section. It is simply a fact. Tolkien wrote a fantasy without God in it. 
Okay. Horatio says, In this story, there is no overt theology or religion. There is no mention of God. No one is worshipped. There are no prayers. Tolkien began writing his outline <clears throat> for what would, over the next decades of his life, become the Legendarium. And I'm going to use that phrase repeatedly. The Legendarium is the entire expanse of Middle-earth uh, storytelling. And that includes not just The Lord of the Rings, but also The Hobbit, and uh, the book that chronologically predates all of them, The Silmarillion. The Silmarillion is a book that uh, starts at the beginning of creation and goes through... It's kind of tricky, but the, the proper storytelling arc goes through um, the end of the second age. And the first age tells the story of creation, which we'll get to presently, but it tells the story of creation. Uh, basically what you could describe as the, uh, the, the Edenic fall of Arda, which is the name of Earth in Lord of the Rings. Um, the proper name, I guess I should say. Uh, so the fall of Arda, and then all the chaos that ensues in a fallen world. So I'm going to I'm going to just read a few points I have here. Tolkien began writing the outline for what would become the Silmarillion, whilst in the trenches of the Battle of the Somme in 1916, 21 years before the release of The Hobbit. So before he wrote. In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. He was writing about Arendelle. He was writing about Melkor. He was writing about the Silmarils and dwarves and elves and men and, and their various interactions. The hobbit was an afterthought. A middle thought, not an afterthought. If anything, the Lord of the Rings was the afterthought, but whatever. The Silmarillion, the very first sentence in the, in the very first book in chronological order, begins... As follows. There was Eru, the one, who in Arda is called Iluvatar, and he made the first Ainur, the Holy Ones, that were the offspring of his thought, and they were with him before aught else was made. Does that sound familiar to anyone, or is it just me? It sounds really, really familiar. It sounds like a condensed version of the first dozen or so verses in the book of Genesis. He created beings. He created creation. Although in, in, in the Ainulindale, which is the <clears throat> first book in the Silmarillion, it, uh, it doesn't follow point by point the, the Genesis creation story. But the narrative beats are there. Publishing the Silmarillion was an uphill battle between Tolkien and between his publishers. The publishers wanted a sequel to The Hobbit because The Hobbit was very successful. It still is very successful all these decades later. Funny. Um, it's almost like it resonates with people. And this, they wanted a sequel to it. Why? Because money. Obviously. Tolkien wanted to jump to the Silmarillion. That was his preferred story. That was where it all began, and he was still putting it together. 
and he wanted to see where it would go. And so they essentially they reached a compromise. If Tolkien would provide a sequel to The Hobbit, to the publishers, obviously, the publishers would then follow him for the Silmar Silmarillion. So basically, you give us what we want, we'll give you what you want. You scratch our back, we'll scratch yours. Pretty straightforward. In Tolkien fandom, there is a, there is a very well-known letter that Tolkien wrote to his publishers. And in this letter 130, uh, addressed to Milton Waldman, who was the public, his publisher at the time, Tolkien writes as follows. The cycles begin with a cosmological myth, the music of the Ainur, otherwise known as the Ainulindale. God and the Valar, or powers, Englished as gods, are revealed. The latter are, as we should say, angelic powers, whose function is to exercise delegated authority in their spheres. That came from Tolkien's mind, down to his hand, through the pen, and onto the paper. That is historical fact. It is on the historical record. J.R.R. Tolkien, the writer of The Lord of the Rings, which, as we've been told, is not a Christian story, wrote God and the Valar. So right there, he's using, he's, he's mixing language. He's mixing terminology. He's using, and it's worth noting in the letter, God is capitalized. So it's not God in the sense of the the pantheon or Roman gods or anything like that. It is God, one singular, holy, eternal God. God and the Valar. So he's not, he, he's using language from reality and from the story that he's creating. And he is equating them. Eru created the Valar. Here we have God and the Valar. So it makes sense you know, is this a transitive property? I was not very good at ge uh, I'm so, I was so bad at geometry that I had to stop just there and make sure that I was about to say the right subject. I was not very good at geometry. I think it's the transitive property, or maybe it's another one. If God worked with the Valar, and the Valar worked with Eru, Eru Iluvatar, it seems like Eru is God, right? Right. So this particular letter 130, um, goes on to lay out in remarkable detail exactly what the cosmological hierarchy is within the realms of Arda. Suffice it to say, Eru Luvatar resides above all. He is the god of Middle-earth. So, going to the initial claim, it is simply a fact. Tolkien wrote a fantasy without god in it. False! My next rebuttal. As for the matter of there being no worship or prayers, this one, it, I'll give him this. This one is a reasonable point about which to be mistaken. I'll give him that. That on the surface, to the uninitiated, it could seem like there are no prayers in the Lord of the Rings. But that's also false. There is a particular phrase of power found in the Lord of the Rings. O Elbereth Gilthonio. This phrase, more than being uh, a, a collection of pretty sounding words, <clears throat> is directed at a specific figure. It's not Eru Iluvatar, but rather the Ainur named Varda. So let me tell you a little bit about Varda. Varda, which is Sindarin for Sublime, is a prominent figure in Tolkien's Legendarium. Being an Ainur, she is one who is created directly from the mind of Iluvatar. There is no step between 
the Ainur, and Eru. Eru thought it, and it was made. And that is the Ainur. They were the first of his creations. He thought them, and they came into being. So, pretty important figures. If God creates you directly with his own mind, his own hands, his own whatever, you are a pretty big deal. So being an Ainur, one who is created directly from the mind of Iluvatar, we know that she is important. She is the queen of the Valar. She is the wife of Manwe. Manwe, another Ainur, is basically God's prime minister on Earth. When, whenever any of, the, any of the Valar, any of the Ainur, had an issue, they would go to Manwe. Manwe would then converse in his thought with Iluvatar directly. He was he was Eru's prime minister, prime uh, director on Arda. Varda was his wife, first lady, if you will. She's going to get invited to a lot of really nice dinner parties. Probably nicer than you or I will get invited to. Bringing it back to Varda. Before the founding of Arda, so that's his own thing. So I'll just say that the creation of Arda happened in in waves. No pun intended. Hardcore Tolkien fans will get that one. Um, but it, it kind of it happened in phases, you could say. Before the founding of Arda, Varda, which isn't it funny how words work? Varda, who is basically the queen of Arda. Cool. Um, Varda created the stars, which, again, in Tolkien, uh, in, in the Legendarium, the stars, the sun, and the moon, but particularly the stars, are monumentally important. But we don't have time to go into that now. So she created the stars. Again, she's a big deal. She later brightened them with the light of the two trees, Laurelin and Telperion, which, again, I wish that we had time to go into We'll do that in another episode where I'm just talking about the Legendarium. But you could think the two trees, um, Laurelin and Telperion, were created uh, and were, were the sources of light in Valinor, which is the Undying Lands. It's where all the Ainur lived prior to going to Middle-earth. And the two trees were the sources of light. Laurelin, I believe, was gold, and Telperion was silver. So you could think of them as the sun and the moon. And what would happen is, is Laurelin's light would wane, and then it would begin to wax, and while it was waxing, Telperion's would wane. And there was, there was a moment twice a day where the light of the two trees was equal. And so you had the gold of the sun and the silver of the moon, and that was that was like that was like the golden hour, you know. That was when everybody was taking pictures and putting them on Instagram. It was that. Unfortunately, those trees were killed by Melkor, who kind of represents uh, Satan or Lucifer. Which again, we don't have a lot of time to get into that. But he was jealous of um, of the other Ainur and all that they were doing, and he just wanted to see the world burn. So he got a really big spider named Ungoliant, and he snuck in, uh, snuck back into Valinor, while all the rest of the Ainur were uh, celebrating a feast day, which is a religious thing. Um, so they were off 
uh, celebrating a feast day. Their guard was down. So Melkor with Ungoliant went to the two trees and sucked them dry. Just completely sapped them of all their energy, all their light, and Valinor went dark. And it was a it was it was a moment so tragic that few songs or tales were ever written or sung about it. It was just it was it was too great a tragedy to even properly commit to memory. But Varda was able to salvage some of their light, and she used that to brighten the stars. Eventually, the proper sun and moon came along, and, uh, and that was when time itself started, was when the sun and the moon were created, and we had proper days. <clears throat> but even that's kind of complicated. Um, so, getting back to Varda, and beyond that, getting back to Oelabreth Gilthoniel. That is a phrase that we hear repeatedly in The Lord of the Rings. Um, I believe the only, the only people I can remember, the only characters I can remember using it are Frodo and Sam. And they use it to, for lack of a better term, activate the star glass that was given to Frodo by Galadriel in Lothlorien. The star glass contains the light of the most precious star of the elves. Come on. I've seen people on YouTube do this. For those who are listening, there we go. For those who are listening, my camera went out of focus. And to, to get this light to shine in places where all other lights have gone out, Frodo is given a phrase to use. And the principal... Uh, Part of that phrase is O Elabreth Gilthonio. Elabreth is another name for Varda. Um, Varda, Elabreth, Elbereth, sorry, I've been saying Elabreth, Elbereth. I need to make that edit. Elbereth has a lot of other titles, right? But she's she's primarily the, the Queen of the Valar, Queen of Varda. And what's interesting about that is that she bears a lot of similarities to the figure of the Virgin Mary. A lot of them. And I'm going to read you some of the titles of the Virgin Mary, because she has a lot of titles. She's, for those who don't know, the Virgin is, uh, is, uh, quite the significant figure in Catholicism. Some of her titles are as follows. Queen, conceived without original sin. Queen, assumed into heaven. Queen of heaven. Queen of peace. Queen of all saints. Queen of Angels, and I think most importantly, Queen of the World. Arda, Elbereth, O Elbereth Gilthoniel, is the Queen of Arda, the Earth. The Virgin Mary is Queen of the World. When Frodo, and once when Sam, appeals to Elbereth, O Elbereth Gilthoniel, that is the Ave Maria, the Hail Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, and now and in the hour of our death. The full 
and this is where I'm going out on a limb, but I'm going to try to read in Cinderin the full Elbereth Gilthonio. Uh, Elbereth Gilthonio, Silivrin Penya Miriel, Omenel Aglar Elenath, Nacharid Palad, Palan Diriel, O Galadremen Enorath, Venuilos Lelenathon, Nefaer si Nefaeron, A Elbreth Gilthoniel, O Menel Palan Diriel, Lanalan si Digurthos, A Tiro Nin Thanulos. What that means in the common tongue is O Elbreth Starkindler. White light glittering, slanting down, sparkling like a jewel. The glory of the starry host, having gazed far away from the tree-woven lands of Middle-earth, to thee, ever-white, I will sing, on this side of the sea, here, on this side of the ocean. O Elbereth star-kindler, from heaven gazing afar, to thee I cry now beneath the shadow of death. To thee I cry now beneath the shadow of death. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and in the hour of our death. I knew I should have put my phone on airplane mode. Um, that phone call was really badly timed, but I'm going to leave it in. How long have I been going? 37 minutes! <laughs> okay, this uh, has been a much longer episode than I intended it to be. So we'll get to the next point. We'll try to be much quicker. I think most of the other points are shorter. Yeah, we'll just see what we get out of this. Point number two. He was a Catholic because of his mother. That is what Horatio put. He was a Catholic because of his mother. Evidence. It's not really clear. Like, he doesn't... The Horatio doesn't really provide a lot of evidence. Uh, but it seems as though the author is suggesting that Mabel Tolkien simply happened to choose the Birmingham Oratory, which is the, the place that Tolkien would later grow up when, spoiler alert, his mother passed away a few years uh, Hence, Horatio suggests that Mabel Tolkien, and by extension, John and his brothers, became Catholic simply by chance. That they were walking down the street, and hey, look, there's a pretty church, let's go in, maybe the people are nice. He, he, he quotes uh, Humphrey Carpenter's biography, and he quotes it using this phrase, or this, this passage. She took the boys on long Sunday walks, she being Mabel, in search of a place of worship that appealed to her. She soon discovered the Birmingham Oratory, a large church in the suburb of... I completely, uh, I completely typoed that. In the suburb of somewhere, presumably Birmingham, that was looked after by a, con a community of priests. That's it. That's all the evidence we got for Mabel Tolkien. Uh, he was Catholic because of his mother. That's it. If he was Catholic because of his mother, he was still Catholic. And long after his mother died, he chose to remain a Catholic. It seems as though there was something about being Catholic that appealed to him. Because for the vast majority of J.R.R.'s life, he had ample opportunity to say, you know what, I don't think I'm actually Catholic. But he never did. Moving on. Next point. As a young adult, Tolkien all but apostatized. For those who don't know what that means... Apostasy is renouncing one's faith. As a young adult, Tolkien all but renounced one's faith. I mean, right there, it's like, okay, he all but renounced his faith, but he didn't. Regardless, let's see what he has to say. He, quote, almost ceased to practice my religion. That's a quote that Horatio took from Tolkien. Bit of evidence number two. 
Tolkien seems to have deeply loved Santa. The horror. Quote, how, told, how Catholic was he? He never made any effort to study theology. He seems never to have made a pilgrimage to Rome, etc. So, for a guy who says that he writes about religion, sex, and facts, which is Horatio's uh, branding, I guess, he seems to have gotten the first and the last of those three areas a bit confused. There is an Islam a uh, requirement to make pilgrimage to Mecca or to, I believe, some other holy site if Mecca is not possible for the pilgrimage to be made to. Catholicism is not Islam. It predates Islam, but it's not Islam. There is no requirement to make a pilgrimage to Rome or to any other holy site. There's no requirement to study theology. Those are things that people choose to do, but it's not a requirement. There is no salvific uh, there's no salvific stakes based on whether or not one has done these things. You're probably going to be better for it. You'll probably feel closer to God, and it, it'll probably boost your faith if you do one or both of these things. But it's not a requirement. So to say that, to, to ask how Catholic was he? He didn't, he didn't make any effort to study theology. He seems never to have made a pilgrimage. Okay. And, and as for that last bit, etc. What is that etc. meant to, to suggest? What other, uh, what other requirements didn't Tolkien hold up? I would really be curious to know. Because given that his first two requirements are not requirements, I'd love to know what other, uh, what other misunderstood points Tolkien didn't live up to. Horatio goes on, because of course he does. His scholarly work seems to have been almost completely unreligious. Okay. Okay, what what of it? I'm becoming a Catholic. I've never studied ecclesial Latin. I've never I've never written an article on the finer points of the faith. I deal in psychology. That's a very secularized field. Does that mean that I'm not a Catholic or that I'm not becoming a Catholic? Does it mean I'm not a Christian because I don't I haven't published an essay explicitly about the Christian faith? Come on. Quote he was deeply invested in texts like Beowulf, but not really Christian texts. Which, that is a whole other thing. And at the end of this video, I'll, I'll tell you where you can go to find better stuff about that. But this is where, this is where Horatio is beginning to blend the stated purpose of his essay with what I believe to be the more prejudiced purpose of his essay. Which is just kind of not understanding Christianity and then running with that ignorance as far as you can. So I would like to make the point here that the, the overarching theme of this particular section is if you're not a perfect Christian, then you are about to be no Christian at all. Which, hey, I admire that, uh, I admire that devotion to the faith, but it's not true. And I'm going to cite as evidence for it being not true someone that I'm sure anyone listening to this, watching this, Someone I'm sure you all have heard of. Mother Teresa. Otherwise known in the Catholic faith as St. Teresa of Calcutta. She's a saint. A saint is someone who the Catholic Church has deemed with 100% certainty is in the presence of God. Having died, they are now in the presence of God. Again, it's a whole theological thing. We don't have time for it. Horatio would probably say that Tolkien didn't know anything about it because he never formally studied theology. 
but I digress. Mother Teresa. She did a lot of good things, didn't she? She she operated um, homes for the dying. She fed the sick. She clothed the naked. She healed the, the, the wounded. She gave shelter to the homeless. She did a lot of really good things. A lot of things that Christians are told very explicitly to do. Cool. Would it surprise you then to know that for most of her adult life, and for most of her ministry as Mother Teresa, she doubted that God was that God cared anything about her. She experienced what is known in theological circles as a dark night of the soul. A dark night of the soul is a period of of spiritual difficulty in which the individual questions questions their faith questions whether or not God is real, questions whether or not God cares about them. Very foundational things they question. It's a dark night of the soul. St. Teresa's own letters, she says that she experienced this dark night of the soul for I think it was like 40-something years. 40-something years. She doubted whether or not God was there, whether or not he was taking her prayers. She doubted it. But still, she served him. She did the things that she believed she was called by God to do. At the very least, it's possible that a person can be faithful without necessarily feeling it. So this idea that if you don't feel the presence of God in your life, then you're supposed to give up or or that you're, that doubt or questions means that you've apostatized? No. It it means that you're a Christian living in the world. Period. Like it that's what it means. Show me a Christian who has never once doubted, and I'll show you either a saint or a liar. Period. Moving on to the next point. This one's a good one. I might end on this one. Because it's a joke. It's just a joke. Quote <clears throat> from Horatio. Tolkien liked the Eucharist and disliked most priests. Tolkien liked, he liked, he liked the Eucharist. Tolkien liked that thing where you enjoy something and you appreciate it and respect it. He felt that way towards the Eucharist. Tolkien liked the Eucharist. Now let's go, let's go up to an earlier point earlier question. As a young adult, Tolkien all but apostatized, but he liked the Eucharist. He was a Catholic because of his mother. But how Catholic was he? He never made any effort to study theology. He seems never to have made a pilgrimage to Rome. But he liked the Eucharist. Okay, so, I'm sorry, but this is just such an idiotic point that is so easily refuted by spending two minutes reading something that you could Google. Um, seriously, if you're watching this, if you're reading this, pull up Google, Safari, another tab, whatever, and just Google how did Tolkien, just Google Tolkien and Eucharist. Tell me what comes up. So, as evidence, Horatio writes, uh, quote, the temptation to unbelief, which really means rejection of our Lord and his claims, is always a temptation. 
that's an odd thing to say uh, to to defend him liking the Eucharist, and it's also an odd thing to point out right after you tried to make the point that he almost apostatized, but whatever. So that comes from one of Tolkien's own letters, letter 250. So I'm going to I'm going to refute that just real quick here. <sighs> letter four letter 43 which was a hum, hundred and some odd letters before letter 250. To quote Tolkien, out of the darkness of my life so much frustrated, I put before you... By the way, this was written to his son, Michael. Out of the darkness of my life, so much frustrated, I put before you the one great thing to love on earth. The blessed sacrament. There you will find romance, glory, honor, fidelity, in the way of all of our loves upon earth. And more than that, death. By the divine paradox, that which ends life and demands the surrender of all, and yet, by the taste and foretaste, of which alone can what you seek in your earthly relationships, love, faithfulness, joy, be maintained, or take on the complexion of reality, of eternal endurance, whichever man's heart desires." It doesn't sound like Tolkien likes the Eucharist. It sounds like he loves it and sees it not just as a thing to do, but as an absolute necessity to being human, to say nothing of being a Catholic. Tolkien liked the Eucharist. You know what I like? I like coffee. I like pen holders that keep all of my pens nice and neat and organized. I like that hat, right? It's mirrored, but I like that hat right there. I like the layout of my room. I like the guitars under my bed. There are a lot of things I like. None of the things I just listed would I say, there you will find romance, glory, honor, fidelity in the true way of all your loves upon earth. None of those things that I just listed would I say would I say speaks to a man's desires. Tolkien liked the Eucharist. As for disliking priests, he really doesn't say much. He brings up some some unsubstantiated claims about Tolkien's son, who later went on to become a priest. You can imagine what those claims are, and I'll bring those up in the next video because I think they're more relevant there. But they really are, you know, unsubstantiated. So, he brings those up and tries to construe this, this notion of Tolkien not liking priests. Um, we got time for one more. Ah, oh, but there are two more points. Oh, okay. Might go a little bit long here. Um, did Tolkien believe in the Bible? I don't know, did he? The Gospels contain a fairy story, or a story of a larger kind which embraces all the essence of fairy stories. They contain many marvels, particularly artistic, beautiful, and moving. Mythical in their perfect, self-contained significance. This is something that Tolkien wrote. 
Um, he, he then goes on, Horatio goes on in his own words to say, when he explained Christianity to a struggling C.S. Lewis, which is his own video, to a struggling C.S. Lewis, Tolkien explained the Gospels as a story that resembled others in world mythology, but with the advantage of being true. Quote, and this is a Tolkien quote, well, this is a C.S. Lewis quote in which he is quoting Tolkien, so kind of, it's like inception with quotes. But in the, on the night that Tolkien and Arthur Graves, Greaves? Arthur Greaves, uh, basically convinced C.S. Lewis to, uh, to move from being a deist to being a Christian, Tolkien made the point that C.S. Lewis loves myths, loves world mythology. That was one of the things that he and that, that Tolkien and Lewis had very much in common was their love of myth. And Tolkien made the point that in the Christian story are found all the narrative points that one finds in various mythologies from all over the world. What makes it different is that the Christian myth is a true myth. In other words, it is this fantastical tale that involves God and men, magic, romance, all these different things, all these things that have for, for eons untold have been the way that man has made sense of his place in the universe. All these aspects are present in the Christian story, but only in the Christian story are they found to be true. Because we know that the Christian story happened. We know that there was a King David. There was a there was a a, a, a temple there in in Jerusalem, and Jewish kings ruled there, as is obvious from the fact that it's the it's the 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 world center for Judaism. We know that many of the historical points of the Old Testament happened. We also know that around the year 33 AD, there was uh, a Jewish man. His name was Jesus. He was thought of as a miracle worker. We know this. We have, we have historical documents. In fact, it's, it's interesting. There are more, uh, there's more corroboration for the historical fact of Jesus. And th the historical fact that Jesus, as a man, existed, than there is for Julius Caesar. People don't go, people don't learn about Caesar in school and say, yeah, but he didn't really exist. They take it as fact. Why? Because they're historical documents. There are historical documents that mention Jesus, that mention that he was a miracle worker, that mention that he ran afoul of the Jewish authorities and as a result was crucified. There are historical documents demonstrating this. So, it is a true myth. C.S. Lewis had a, a point, and I'll end on this. Um, and I, I can never remember exactly how he puts it. But basically he says that Jesus was either uh, 
a fraud, a madman, or the son of God. If he was a fraud, we should ignore him. If he was a madman, we should avoid him and be afraid of him. If he was the son of God, we should take him very, very seriously. And, you know, that that's kind of like Pascal's wager, right? Like, I don't know if there is a God or if there isn't a God, but I'm going to live as if there is, because if there isn't, and I live as though there is, I'm no worse for wear. But if there is, and I live as though there isn't, there are going to be some awkward conversations down the road. So, I want to bring this to a close, because we're right at one hour and 22 seconds. So, I want to bring this to a close. The Lord of the Rings was a story written by J.R.R. Tolkien. And he was a deeply Catholic individual. And I'm just looking over my notes, and there. Yes, I'm going to end on this quote. Lord of the Rings was written by J.R.R. Tolkien. He was a deeply Catholic individual. He wrote a story that tied in many elements of world mythology, but also many elements of Christian mythology, we should call it. In letter 142, which he wrote to his Jesuit friend, uh, Robert Murray. He wrote this, and I'm going to leave it here. I'm going to end the video right after. If you like this video, like, subscribe. Sorry, I had to say that. I hate saying that so much. I'm going to leave it with this. You be the judge of what the following passage could mean. I think I know exactly what you mean by the order of grace. And of course, by your reference to Our Lady, the Virgin Mary upon which all my own small perception of beauty, both in majesty and in simplicity, is founded. The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. I'm going to repeat that. The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Unconsciously so at first, but consciously... In the revision. Consciously in the revision. That is why I have not put in or have cut out practically all references to anything like, quote, religions, to cults or to practices in the imaginary world. For the religious element is absorbed into the story and the symbolism. It is absorbed into the story and the symbolism. However, that is a very clumsy way to put and sounds more self-important than I feel. For, as a matter of fact, I have consciously planned very little and should chiefly be grateful for having been brought up since I was eight in a faith that has nourished me and taught me all that I know. And that I owe to my mother, who clung to her conversion and died young, largely through the hardships of poverty resulting from it. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Like, subscribe, share, leave a review, all that stuff. 
I'm hoping this could be a big year for the podcast. I'd like for many, many, many more people to see it. It's important to me. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a good day.